0: Our gospel lesson this morning is found in Luke chapter 12. We're reading verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying this, "'The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, "'What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops?' And he said, "'I will do this. "'I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, "'and there I will store all my grain and my goods.'" Let's pray. We do give thanks for Your Word as we gather around it this morning, Father, and we pray that You would give us understanding into our Lord Jesus' teaching. It is only in Your light that we see light. Guide us in the way of truth. Speak by Your Spirit, for Your servants are listening. Amen. Amen. In 1886, Leo Tolstoy wrote a short story entitled, How Much Land Does a Man Need? I've quoted it to you before, but it bears repeating because it's particularly applicable to Luke chapter 12. It's a simple question. To match the simple question, Tolstoy tells a simple story. It's about a man named Pockholm. He's a peasant who becomes a landowner in Russia during the 1800s. He loved land. After his first purchase, he wanted to acquire more and more. He was a man who felt like his security, his personal security and identity was bound up in his ownership of land. He said this to his family, "...if I had plenty of land, I wouldn't fear the devil himself." Land was everything to Pakhom. He moves to a new village because he had become odious to everyone around him. And he learned that there was a very wealthy family, the Bashkirs, who owned large tracts of land. And they owned so much land and were so simple-minded that they would sell it for an inordinately cheap price. Pakhom travels to the Bashkirs, attempting to strike a deal. They counsel together and come back to him the next day. And they say, for a thousand rubles, we will let you purchase property. This was extraordinarily cheap. He was frustrated at first because he wanted a lot of property, and they said, well, this is the deal. This will be the way that it works. You take a spade behind you, and from sunup to sundown, you can drag your spade behind you and go around our property. And as long as you are back to the starting point where we are standing by sundown, all the property inside of your spade line will be yours. A thousand rubles. Pakhom was delighted, to say the least. Here was his opportunity to get as much land as he could possibly need. It would be enough. He wouldn't fear the devil himself because he would have so much land. The next morning at sunup, he sets off on his journey. He is dragging the spade, and as he goes, he sees more and more fields that are desirable to him. And he sees groves of forests that are desirable to him. And he sees lakes and ponds that are desirable. And he goes further and further As the afternoon grew tired, he looked and noticed that he was a long ways from the starting point. He had a long journey back, and so he began to run. He ran as hard and fast as he could, and it was because of the joy before him that he ran in a way that he had never run before. And just as the sun came down, he connected the line with his spade. The Bashkirs were cheering him on, telling him how well he had done. And then there in front of them, Pakham drops dead. Tolstoy closes the story with this line. Pakhom's workman picked up the spade lying there beside his dead body and dug a grave for his master six feet from head to heel, which was exactly the right length, and buried him. And this is Tolstoy's very stark answer to the question, how much land does a man need? Six feet. That gets it done. It's a poignant story. It makes the point which Jesus is making here in Luke chapter 12, that our lives do not consist in the abundance of our possessions, that God requires something else of us, and that we can spend our lives in the pursuit of acquisition, whether it be land or money or whatever it may be, and our lives can be poorly spent. And Jesus meets a man who is misdiagnosing his problem. The man comes to him and gives Jesus' his instructions, which is always a bad idea. He instructs Jesus to tell his brother to divide the inheritance with him. He understands that he is a victim of injustice. His brother was not doing right. And Jesus turns and gives the man not what he was expecting. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Tolstoy and Jesus were interested in the desires of the human hearts. Specifically, they were interested in the over-desire, in the desires that have gone into overdrive, and what then happens. And this is what the Bible calls coveting. This is what the Bible refers to as greed. Greed. In order to address this man in the middle of his coveting, which he was not ready to recognize, Jesus tells the story of a rich man. But it's important for us to recognize something, because when we listen to Jesus' parable, we can think that he's picking on the rich. It can look like Jesus is simply picking on those who have an abundance that they are in danger of coveting, and many of us in the room may feel like we're off the hook. But here's the thing, Jesus is no respecter of persons, whether we are rich or poor. And remember that the man who comes with the issue is one who is in want. He doesn't have his inheritance. He's actually in need. He wants the money that he is rightfully supposed to get from his family. Jesus tells the man who is in need about a rich man. And yet he's diagnosing the poor man. And Jesus is indicating to us that greed knows no boundary, it knows no social class, it knows no bank account, that it lives in the sinful and broken human heart, and we desire to consume. And Jesus wants to help us understand what it is that greed does to us. Because what we learn from Him here is how greed blinds us and what it keeps us from seeing. And specifically, there are three things, three ways that greed blinds us. And the first for Jesus is that greed keeps us from seeing that our possessions are gifts. In verse 16, look how He starts the story. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. This is how Jesus understands creation works, is that we actually have nothing to do with the harvest. With how much we receive, that we are not involved in that. That some work very hard and very diligently and receive very little. Some work very pathetically and receive a great deal. That it can be extremely frustrating. And read the book of Ecclesiastes to go in the vein of that but that the results of work in this life do not always match up. And it is God ultimately who gives. And He gives according to His wisdom and according to His will. But the plenty that the rich man received, he had nothing to do with. It was simply given to him. He was already wealthy and he was given a further abundance. And so the issue is for him What is he going to do with that abundance? And we see that he takes a strange turn. That after he receives the abundance, he decides to build bigger barns. And he begins to use the word my repetitively. He says, my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul. And friends, this is what happens to us when greed grabs our hearts. We begin to take God's good gifts that are freely given to us and entrusted to us, and we begin to possess them possessively. They become mine. They become our property in a way that they were not intended to be. And this is how greed blinds us that we fail to see that it really could have gone either way, and that what we have is a result of God's gracious gift to us. When I was a young pastor at Second Presbyterian Church, I had the opportunity to conduct the Christian Life Conference every year, which was a large regional conference, and so part of my duties was to conduct the speakers who would come into the conference. One year, John Wood from Cedar Springs Presbyterian came and spoke, and so I would play chauffeur throughout the weekend and get to know these speakers. It was uh, always interesting to hear their life story. Many of them were at the crown of their ministry. And John shared a story with me about his career. It was fascinating. He said, you know, Chuck, my dad was a very faithful Baptist pastor. I'm his son and have been in the Presbyterian church my entire career, and God has Inordinately blessed my ministry. John has pastored and grown churches, several of them to very large sizes. He's well known and respected. He said, And the thing that I don't understand at the end of my career is why my dad had such meager fruit because he prayed in a way that I have never prayed. He cared for people in a way that I was never, I've never cared for others. He gave himself to the church, and what did they do? They fired him. And so he went to another church and they did the same. My dad had a hard ministry. He was faithful to God. He said, me on the other hand, when I look at my dad's example, I feel like a failure. And yet God has blessed me inordinately. And it was a stark reminder. He was telling this story. That the land of a rich man provided plentifully. That it is God who gives. It is God who gives increase and he does so according to his wisdom and we're not to quibble or argue with him about it. But greed keeps us from seeing that. That God opens his hand and gives his gifts. The second thing that greed keeps us from seeing though, it keeps us from seeing wealth's subtle trap. And this is where the rich man in the parable completely falls into it. Look what he says in verse 19. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. And the exchange has taken place. The gifts of God have become the source of the man's security. That his personal well being is now bound up in these possessions. This abundance that God gave to him, he has now selfishly stored up into larger barns in order to secure his personal well being. Like Pockham, he thinks that if he has an abundance, he will have nothing to fear. He was secure. His personal well-being lied in his possessions, not in God. And you say, well, what is the problem? The Bible encourages frugality. It does. The Bible is actually not opposed to wealth. It's what we do with wealth that actually is the problem. And the problem for this man when he's gripped with greed, and the problem for us when greed resides inside of our heart, is that there there never is enough. There never is a big enough barn. There never is a big enough harvest. When we fail to receive things from God as gifts with thanksgiving, when we have a selfish orientation to God's gifts, we will always find ourselves in want. We will want more. Security, you see, is elusive. You can chase it as a cat chases its tail. And you'll never grab it. You'll never find it. You'll never secure it. It just simply won't be there. And this man that Jesus is talking to, who He tells the parable to, has misdiagnosed his problem. He doesn't even see what's going on. That he, a man in want, has also bought into wealth's subtle trap. That he is coveting that he wants something, that he believes will give him this security, and Jesus is driving into the problem to address him. He thought he was a victim of injustice, and Jesus says, no, you're a victim of your own chains, your own sins. Augustine, after his conversion, develops his understanding of sin by particularly meditating on Psalm 116, verses 1 and 2. If you'll please turn there with me. The Psalm of David begins, Preserve me, O God, for it is in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And Augustine's theology bears heavily upon these verses and also Psalm 73, where his one true good was in God. That that was the one thing that he had to hold fast and hold above all other loves. But he wrestles with that, because he lived in a world full of good things. And he was writing in his book, The Confessions, about the natural talents and abilities that God had given to him. He was an orator, and he was incredibly smart. For Augustine, where he was trained and where he worked, it was like the Harvards or the Yales of our own world. He was an instructor and professor. He was extremely accomplished. And he is trying to understand how he is to relate to these good gifts God has given him and also how he's then to relate to God. Listen to what he says. All these things are the gifts of my God. I did not give them to myself. These things are good, but in this was my sin that not in Him, but in His creatures, in myself and others, did I seek pleasure, honors, and truths. So it was that I rushed into sorrow, conflict, and error. Did you hear what he said? He took God's good gifts, all the natural talents and abilities that He had, and He turned His good into those things. That's where he found his well-being. That's where he found his good. That's where he found his personal identity. It's where he bound himself up, was in those things. And friends, this is what happens when greed grabs us. Wealth becomes a trap, even though it comes freely to us from God and we had nothing to do with gaining it that it becomes the source of our well-being. It becomes our trust. And rather than finding our one good in God and being rich towards Him, we begin to find our good in worldly things. This is what greed can do to the human heart. The third piece though, the third thing that greed does that Jesus addresses is that greed keeps us from seeing that true prosperity is about more than possessions. Jesus closes the parable in verse 21 by saying, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The man's soul was required of him. He died just like every one of us in this room will. He had an appointment in which he had to meet God and to answer for himself. His soul was required of him. And God says, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Like Pockham, he couldn't take his barn with him. Pockham didn't need the large tracts of land that he had marked out with his spade because he only took six feet. There is something more important than not gaining your inheritance is what Jesus is saying to the man he ministers to. There is a greater loss than not gaining your inheritance, and there is a greater gain than your inheritance is what Jesus is trying to communicate with him. Life is more than your possessions because your possessions will dispossess you. And in the years of ministry that I've done, I've never met someone who enters into the twilight of life who would prefer a full bank account over a relationship with their kids. It just hadn't happened yet. I've met many people who grieve the fact that they have a full bank account and they have no relationship with their kids. I have not met anyone who looks back and says that in the name of work and acquisition, they would justify the fact that they don't have a good relationship with their spouse. Never seen anyone say that would be important. I've never seen anyone on their deathbed, as they feel the frailty of their life, as they know that life is slipping away from them, say that their possessions are really important. What do they want around them? They want the truth of the Gospel shared with them. They want their family and friends. They want to know all of God's promises to them. friends when we meet that mortality, it brings things into very sharp focus. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's taking us to the end to say, live in light of that end now. As to what you would deem important at the close of your life, as life slips away, that is the way to live now. That is what you need to value. That true prosperity is different than possessions. You want riches towards God. Wendell Berry has written an excellent novel entitled Jaber Crow. It's about a farming community in Kentucky. And there is a young man named Troy who inherits a farm from his father-in-law. His father-in-law was known for his farming skill, and he had done things the old way. But Troy was a man built on acquisition, and so he began to purchase more property and tractors and different kinds of seed. He was a man caught up in possession. He worked himself day and night. He cheated on his wife. He didn't know his kids. He leveraged everything the family had to buy more tractors and more land. The farm was not that productive. He seemed busy and important, but he was absolutely a suit, or I suppose you would say a pair of coveralls. Barry, at the close of the book, writes this. Troy was an exhausted man on the way back, not to what he had been when he started out, but to the nothing that everything had been created from. Do you catch what he's saying? Troy had started off with nothing in life. He was a son of a poor farmer. He had become somewhat an important farmer in the community, But Barry is pointing out that he wasn't heading back to that being a peasant. He was headed to something worse. He was headed to the disintegration of what God had created him to be. A human being in community who was rich towards God. And he was sacrificing all of that. He was heading back into the chaos that God had brought order out of in creation. Reinhold Huter. A German theologian says it this way, he says, "...without desire we would cease to be human. Without God as desire's ultimate end, we become inhumane." And this is what had happened to Troy, and this is what happens to us as well. When greed and covetous take up residence, they blind us, and we begin to think that our prosperity exists in how much we own, And it simply isn't the case. And we know that we're prone to this. What exactly do we do about it? How do we answer the problem? My oldest son, when he was a baby, you wouldn't know it now, but he was incredibly chunky. He had all that good baby fat on him. And I remembered as a young, very vigilant dad, I was going to bathe him in one of those baby tubs. Um, We never used it again after this incident. But you get all the gear and you think you're going to do everything right and all this stuff. And so I get the water temperature just right. I fill up the baby tub, put it on the kitchen counter, and I take my fat, chunky son and lay him into the tub. And I put too much water, a rookie mistake. And so my fat, chunky son displaced it all over the place. It just was baptizing the kitchen, you know, just running over full and this is what has to happen in your heart as well that something has to displace the love for possessions and why you want to find your security in it this is how you answer the problem is that some greater affection has to come in and grab you and displace the love for the things of this world jesus tells a story in matthew 13 verse 44 he says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. And that's what has to happen to us. That's the way and the path of getting over worldly possessions and what they can do to us and greed and how it can affect us is knowing that there is something more valuable in what God gives to us in His Son Jesus in the kingdom of God, the reign of God, coming into the world to make all things right and to renew everything. That that is the pearl of great price, Jesus says. That is the treasure hidden in the field. It has more value. There is more wealth. There is more resource. There is more there than you can find anywhere else. And Jesus is challenging us to venture on Him. To trust Him with that. Because friends, we will all have to answer the question, the fruits of our lives will be borne out. What we loved will be made evident. And whether we have a true and abiding faith in Jesus, will become apparent in front of God. And whether we loved money and mammon and possessions, will be made plain. And there are more riches for you in what God has for you in Jesus. And so look to Him. Let's ask for His help. Father, we know how fickle our hearts are and how weak, how easily we fall in love with your created gifts and we abuse them. Help us in our weakness, and may you displace the things that we love in this world with the love of your kingdom, and may we see it as a treasure hidden in a field, and may we go liquidate and sell everything in order to have it, and may we prize it above all else. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name.